So when Lisa and I bought the house that we currently live in, we got a pretty good deal on it, and in large part because it was in rough shape. Um, the people that lived there, they didn't own the house, uh, the, her, her dad did, and, and uh, you could tell there was no pride of ownership, so it needed a lot of work. I mean, a lot of work, like everything needed uh, to be refloored, recarpeted, everything, uh, the, the entire yard was trashed, we needed to do landscaping. Uh, so we were able to get it for a good price, and then we just made it our goal that over the course of as long as we would live there, we would just improve what we could afford to pay for at that time, and so we continued to do things like that, and we got around to where it was time to repaint the inside. I mean, we had some really horrible colors down in the kitchen, and it was one of those they didn't tape anything off, so they had painted over, and, and it was just really messy. So uh, we decided it was time to repaint uh, the cabinets, the kitchen island, the banister going up to uh, the upstairs, and all the walls in the kitchen, the family room, uh, the dining room, and, and the uh, living room. And um, so let me just stop right there and say, if you'd like to test the integrity, health, and strength of your marriage, you should do home improvement projects as often as possible because it will expose things that you ordinarily believed you would have been in agreement on and it will show you how very differently you see things. So um, we had sort of agreed that we wanted to bring it into a more contemporary color and we sort of noticed that grays were the color, but we really could not reach agreement quickly on what color of gray that we wanted the downstairs to be. So at one point, uh, we, we had really gotten frustrated and we had gone to the, uh, I think Lowe's and, and we had picked up multiple samples of paint that we painted on this pillar at the bottom of the stairs and we painted them side by side in big enough blocks that you could sort of see it and then you could see it in contrast and they had wonderful, wonderfully descriptive names like worldly gray and agreeable gray and on the rocks and mindful gray, all very, very gray sounding grays and uh, we painted those and I kid you not, for at least two weeks, we just stalemated. We were digging our heels in and we were arguing over which one of these uh, we were going to paint. And I, I, I should say at this point, if we had brought any of you into our home and said, which would you choose? You would have said something to the degree of, uh, th that's not all the same color? That, that feels, it looks like the same exact color. Um, but clearly to us it wasn't. We were in real disagreement about uh, which one of these shades of gray we were gonna go with. So ultimately at one point, I can't remember who, one of us said, what, what color did we paint the bedroom upstairs? And the other one said, it's uh, this one of whatever gray. And we go, why don't we just paint it that? We like that one. 
And then we both said, yeah, that's fine. And this is like, mind you though, like two weeks of arguing and fighting and just not budging. Like, I'm sorry, I'm not, we'll just, we'll leave it exactly the way it is. I'll leave those spots up there. People can come over and go, oh, are you guys getting ready to paint? And we'll just go, nope, we were going to. And then we couldn't agree on a color. So now we're not. We're just gonna leave that there as a reminder of how broken this marriage is and we can't agree <laughs> on anything. That's what we're gonna do. But we didn't, we just said, uh, we like that color, just do that. And so that's exactly what we did. Now, imagine that, that capacity for us to be in disagreement, but it's not paint that we're talking about, it's something that feels much more important. And it's not just a insignificant uh, disagreement of perspective, it's that you feel convicted about it, you feel strongly about it, you feel emotional about it. And when we get in those places, we begin to move ourselves further and further away from compromise, agreement, seeing things from the same perspective, and we move out of the gray into the black and white. And we want to stand with those who see it like we see it. Because one thing Lisa and I did do is anyone that dared come into our house, we would try to sucker them into agreeing with us. So if you were picking a paint color, which would you choose? And if they chose anything other than what I chose, I'd go, why are you even here? What do, why are you in our house? Don't you have to be somewhere? Like we just try to escort them out. So we loved it when we could find that agreement because it made us feel better. Now, I wanna tell you that is exactly, exactly what's happening in the world today in politics today, in our homes today, even in our marriages, in our parenting, in our schools, in our beliefs, and sadly, even in our churches, maybe even especially in our churches. We want to quickly and definitively identify ourselves with those who agree with us most. There's a Greek name. We get almost all of our names for love or types of love from the Greeks. And there's a Greek name uh, which is homophily. Homophily is the love of the same. The, 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 the agreement, you love being around, hearing things that look the same, feeling the same, all of that. Now, you might not think that you are the type of person that is in, uh, in love with the same, that in homophily with the same, except that if I began to paint these walls with provocative names of, of paint colors, like immigration and border security, gun rights and mass shootings, racism, reparations, Rape, incest, and abortions, free speech and censorship, LGBTQ community and the church. If I began to paint our walls with that, I promise you that in short order, we would begin to hear the thoughts and opinions and viewpoints and perspectives of what people see and to the degree of what shade they see. It would get down to the worldly gray and the agreeable gray and the on the rocks. 
It would be where one person might say, how can you tell the difference between those? But when we find the color, the shade, the position, the perspective, we don't wanna move from that. We want people to move to us. We are in homophily. We want people to see the world like we see the world. One of the most studied and uh, measured things in social science is political homophily. We have statistics, we have studies, we have research that shows how powerful political homophily is. It is so powerful, it is so influential that it determines the city we'll live in. It determines the schools we'll send our kids to. It determines the partner we will choose. It determines our hobbies and even determines the music we'll listen to. That is how much we want to hear things, be around things, teach things, educate ourselves, live in a culture and an atmosphere that agrees with us and our political viewpoints. In 1960, just 4% of Democrats and 5% of Republicans reported that they would be upset if their child married someone from the other political party. In 2010, those numbers had grown to 33% of Democrats and 49% of Republicans. That was 13 years ago. Can you imagine if they took that poll again today? We obviously wanna surround ourselves with people who think like us, who believe the same as we do, who see the world the same as we see it, and who live the same way that we see things in politics, but more importantly, almost everything else in addition to politics. Our personal ideals, our convictions, our opinions, our social values, and our religious convictions, our religious faith system. Let's be honest, we prefer that things are in binary terms. Years ago, whenever you'd say binary, you immediately understood that was computer speak, it was nerd speak, because all computer code is written in binary, ones and zeros, every single thing is made up of binary. It's that simple, everything can be reduced in computer language to just a binary code. Black and white, one or the other, we like to know that there's a winner and a loser. Today at 12.30, the Kings will play. Again, the, uh, the uh, Golden State Warriors. And there won't, at the end, be, you both did a great job. We're gonna, we're gonna let you both go on. Go on, you guys. You both earned this. We want there to be a winner and we want there to be a loser. We wanna be able to distinguish between right and wrong. It's either right and wrong. It's good or evil. It's heads or tails. We're either for it or we're against it. It's yes or no. We're a Republican, we're a Democrat. We go to heaven or we go to hell. We want things to be binary because it makes us feel better. Whether it's an issue or a doctrine, a belief, a topic, we want to know that there are just two clear sides so that we can make a decision on it. We can choose where we stand. We can decide who the good guys are and the bad guys are in this story. Whenever you hear a news story, they phrase it in such a way that immediately you are either the victim or someone else is the villain or you're the champion. You hear a story that affirms your belief system and you say, yay, we won. Or you hear something that you say, oh my gosh, the enemy is getting a foothold. 
We don't have to look far, though, to find people when things are in binary terms, when they're black and white. We don't have to look far because you can just look to the left and the right of the room. Imagine you, instead of sitting where you're sitting, we had you just on one side or the other, and we had you divided by old and young. Or we had you divided by the color of your skin or by your gender. We had you divided in such a way that it made it feel like us versus them. It would be hard for me to get you to connect and talk and relate to and develop relationship with anyone on the opposite end of this room's spectrum. Especially if I said, over here these guys believe this. And over here, these guys believe that. Immediately, it's an us versus them. I think we like it because it lets us know what we have to defend ourselves against and what we have to fight for. But I have to tell you that throughout Scripture, there is a constant theme a continued thread that runs from beginning to end in which man is the one who moves ourselves into the black and the white, the margins, the furthest extremes, even in our relationship with God. I mean, day one, Adam and Eve, they fail, they sin, they disobey God. God goes in knowing what they've done, ready to continue relationship, under new terms, mind you, but ready to continue relationship. And what have they done but move themselves away from God? They hid. In the garden, they covered themselves up, afraid and ashamed of their nakedness, which God never told them to be. They began to use that as an excuse to isolate and alienate themselves from all that was good. It's been man that has moved ourselves into positions of black and white. But the theme of the Bible is that God calls us into the gray because in the gray, there's something that happens It changes us. I mean, I would love to say that the church, we're not the ones being black and white. We're not the ones laying down the law. We're not the ones calling things good or evil. We're not the ones alienating and isolating people and moving them further apart. But I'm afraid that we are the best practitioners, the most seasoned practitioners of doing exactly that. There's a great story in the Bible that you might overlook. It's in Acts 22, 19 through 22. Lord, I replied, this is uh, Paul, the apostle, who if you don't know, before his name was Saul, and he was a persecutor of Christians. He hated Christians. He was a Jewish religious zealot. He was an expert of the law. He had uh, a lot of uh, stature and a lot of influence and a lot of power, and he traveled literally from city to city trying to have arrested, beat up, and even kill Christians, what they called the way back then, this new way of recognizing Jesus as the Messiah, this promised savior of the Jewish people in the whole world. And Paul was a zealot against them. Now he's speaking to Jews in Rome. He's doing this, uh, 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 sorry, no, no, no. Uh, 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 um, I've got all these characters uh, confused. Peter is actually speaking in, uh, in, in um, two Jews, and he's persuading them as Jewish listeners uh, of, of this, um, uh, this new way, and listen to what he says. Lord, I replied, these people know what I used to do. I went from synagogue to another, um, put believers in. I, I was also beat up. This is Paul, sorry. I was beat them. I, I know the Bible, trust me, just, just trust me. 
uh, I also beat them. He's confessing to them. Stephen was a man uh, who told other people about you. So he's having this conversation with I stood there when he was killed. I had agreed that he should die. I pushed them to kill him, and I even guarded the coats of those who were killing him. Can someone tap the thermostat just one degree cooler? Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away the people who aren't Jews, who aren't Jews. Now, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this, then they shouted, kill him, he isn't fit to live. They were in total agreement. They loved everything that Paul, they were religious, they believed that they loved God, they were scriptural uh, um, students, they loved everything that Paul was saying. I went and I beat up Christians and I went and I persecuted them and I went and I held their coats while they killed Stephen. I even said they should kill Stephen. I love killing Christians and they're like, woohoo! And then he says, then God called me because they believed that he was a messenger to them, to the Jews and the Jews only. And then he said, but God called me to go into the gray, to go into the gray and to preach the gospel to everyone who wasn't Jewish. And they, they didn't go, okay, explain that to us. I, I wanna understand it better. They didn't say, ah, it makes me feel weird, but man, if this is of God, I guess I don't wanna stand in the way. They said, kill him. He said things we don't agree with. Now, you may not be calling for somebody's death, but I promise you, the vitriolic, the guttural reaction, that, that emotional response to when somebody says something you don't agree with, do you find yourself drawing yourself to them, walking up to them, going, I wanna understand more, I don't understand this, because I'm not in this way of thinking right now, but I wanna know more. We don't, but we need to, we have to. As followers of Christ, we are obligated to, we are called to. Grab your notes, strap in, we're gonna go quick. God's calling me into the gray because number one, that's where I will press harder for his peace than for my platform. Like in other pastoral letters, um, Paul was trying to address some very specific issues in the church in Rome, and I won't go into all the deep history, but that church in the beginning was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. But there was a Roman emperor who had to expel all the Jews because they were rioting in the name of Crestus, which was the Greek name they gave to Jesus Christ. They called him Crestus. And they said, they are rioting and causing trouble over this Jesus, over this Christ, for and against him. I won't have any of it, and he expelled all Jews from Rome. Then there was a coming back together of the church, in which there was for about five years, they were isolated from each other, and they came back together, and then there was this battle over who was in charge, who was better. The, 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 the Jews had time to go back and almost redefine Christianity as this extension of Judaism while the Gentiles who had never known Jewish law were continuing to live in this new expression of finding a savior. One of the problems was that the Jews considered themselves the strong believers because they had the background of Judaism. They recognized that Jesus was a Messiah of the Jews first. 
And so they felt superior. They knew all Jewish law and they could not forget Jewish law. So they constantly wanted to integrate Jewish law into Christianity. And they would identify the Gentiles, non-Jews, as weak believers. They would argue over things like what could be eaten and what couldn't be eaten because Jews believed that some food was unclean, ceremonially unclean, pork, anything with a split hoof, you couldn't eat that, it wasn't kosher, it wasn't blessed by God, it was forbidden. And the new law under grace was God doesn't call anything clean or unclean and they just couldn't wrap their minds around this. Even after God had blessed all food, they still thought that those who would eat unclean food or food that had been offered in a sacrifice in a temple to another God. They went, it's a cow, it's dead, it's food, I'm gonna eat the meat, it's... They just couldn't wrap their minds around that. They would not move to the middle. And so this is what Paul says in Romans 12, 16 through 18. He says, live in harmony with each other. I wanna tell you that when Paul's writing to them, he is begging, pleading, fighting, pushing, pulling, trying his hardest to get these two factions of followers of Christ, of believers, to just move towards the middle and accept and love each other. Don't be too proud. He's speaking primarily to the Jews here. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people, these people you consider spiritually weak who don't know God as well as you do or you think they don't, and don't think you know it all. Never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way, this proactive, be intentional about your behavior that everyone can, everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Let me stop right there. Leave that up if you will. I don't know if it's Brooklyn back there or who's doing this, but um, leave that there for just a second. That everyone can see that you are honorable. Can I tell you that the world judges Christianity not by what we believe, but how we behave? how we speak, how we treat each other, and how we treat the world. Why would they wanna become part of a movement, of a body, of a congregation, of a community of faith that shoots their wounded, that looks down on each other, that's constantly finding ways to divide ourselves instead of unite ourselves? Paul said, live in such a way that you are always moving towards peace, and you say, it's hard to be at peace with peace. That's why I say it's God's peace, not our peace, because God reconciled with us before we were ready to reconcile with him. God gave us the peace offering, God gave us his son, God moved towards us, even when we weren't ready to move towards him, God made all the steps to bring peace to our doorstep. And he says, you have to act like this. Be at peace, live at peace with everyone. The Bible says that God gives a peace beyond our understanding. We like to say that in times of distress and in times of trouble and when somebody's lost a loved one or somebody's going through a real hardship and that's true. You can receive God's peace during those times but can I tell you that peace beyond our understanding is reconciling with people you disagree with. Reconciling with people and living in peace with people whose perspective, whose practices, whose lifestyle is different than yours. Then it says this in James three seventeen through 18. I love this because the Jews had believed this, and just hold this here for a second. The Jews had believed because they knew the scripture and had for thousands of years that they were superior because of their knowledge. They knew more than these dumb Gentiles who were babies in the faith and didn't know anything. And I love this 
James says this, this is the brother of Jesus, James, by the way. But the wisdom from above, wisdom is appropriately applied knowledge. It's to know something and then to use it in the right capacity. But the wisdom from above is all pure, it's all good. God's wisdom is always right. It is also, just so that you know, it's not just pure, it's also peace-loving, it loves peace. It's gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. To not force your way, not demand your way, but to yield to others in the name of peace, in the name of using wisdom. It's full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And favoritism is, by the way, what we show when we divide people by race, gender, sexual orientation, whatever it happens to be, we use those things to separate people so that we can say, I don't believe what you believe, you don't act like I act, and therefore I'm capable now of standing in judgment to you. And the Bible says that God says, neither Scythian or barbarian, male or Jew, male or, or, or male or female, Jew or Gentile, none of those things have any bearing on whether or not Christ Jesus is in you. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace, plant seeds of peace, intentionally move into seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness, which actually means good things and justice. You see, when we plant peace, there is something that we benefit from. Good things being added back to our life. Second is this, God's calling me into the grave because that's where I will promote his purposes instead of my preferences. So right now, in this moment, you can afford to eat according to your preferences. In other words, you'll leave here, most of you will, I would assume, unless you're on some strict eating plan or diet or thing, uh, you'll go from here and you'll either go home and you'll make yourself something that you want to eat or you'll go from here and you'll go to a restaurant that you pick and you have dozens upon dozens upon dozens to choose from. You can go get Mexican, you can go get Japanese, you can go get uh, uh, um, Italian, you can go get American, you can get a burger, you can get you can go get anything that you want based on your preferences because that's what's available to you and isn't it wonderful that we get to do that. Now, we're all in a plane, super wide plane, by the way. We're all in a plane, and it's super short as well. I don't know how this thing flies, but it's short and wide. And, uh, and we um, have just now crashed. We're, I know, you're okay, though. It's okay. It's super, it wasn't flying that high. <laughs> very low, because obviously it can't, not very aerodynamic. <laughs> um, and we swim in, and now we're on an uncharted, deserted island. My question to you is, at that point, are you eating in accordance to preference or necessity? Necessity. necessity. So when um, some people go out and they, uh, there's some people in the, in the water and they're spearing fish uh, with some sticks we sharpened and, and then there's others who are trapping rabbits or whatever is on this island, armadillos, I don't know. And um, some of those things are not to our liking. Do you go, is there any sushi on the island, just like a Fair Oaks roll with the little sauce on the, is there no, no, nothing like that, okay. A pizza, is anybody doing like a, a stone fire pizza? Nobody's, nobody else, anybody for pizza? 
So Caleb and I went to uh, Africa when he was 10. And uh, we were in a very remote little, um, it's not even really a village. It's this area that had um, dorm, uh, um, warehouse-like housing and had bunk beds in it so that teams could come in and then do work, physical labor in these areas. And we were building a school in this little tiny town-ish thing. And um, we realized really, really quickly that we were not going to be eating out of preference, but rather out of necessity. The first couple meals, you notice everybody was a little bit picky and just, oh, no, thank you for this, and picking around and not eating. By day three, you're starving. And you're like, I don't care. There were um, gnats in our food every single meal, just flying around, landing your rice and stick there, and you're like, Mm, protein. You kind of, <laughs> one meal we asked, oh, what is this? It kind of looked like um, cow. And they said, it's beast meat. And we said, got it. There was still hair in it, sticking out of it. And we went, yum. <laughs> because we were starving because we worked all day, and when we ate, we ate what we could, and we shoved everything into our mouth, and by the end of the week, we ate completely out of necessity, and we had given up our preferences. You can probably see where I'm going. Your mission changes in accordance to your understanding of what's important. You can either wait it out and get what you want and what you prefer, or you can eat because you need to stay alive. I wanna ask you something, in the body of Christ, do you believe that the most important thing is for you to get what you like? Now, I'll tell you that people all over this region are sitting in a church that they shopped out. Because like restaurants, there's plenty to choose from. You can go to the more Chili's-like one that are a bit bigger and, and, uh, and, they're, and they're kind of franchised and, and you know, they've got a little bit more money and they've got things and that might look a little nicer and you can choose that or you can go to the little tiny mom and pop ones that the churches only have like 40 or 50 people and it's not polished at all but it feels a little bit more like a backyard barbecue and you like that and then there's everything in between and there's styles of worship and there's styles of teaching and there's different kinds of children's ministry and we get to just go around until we find the one that suits our preferences the most. He says the stuff I like or she says the stuff I like. They sing the songs I like. This is where I'm in homophily. I'm not trying to run you off. I'm just saying that we have built the church, at least in the West, and I mean the Western world, around our preferences. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23 says. Even though, Paul, this is him saying to the church, even though I'm free of the demands and expectations of it, I don't, I'm not obligated, I'm not a, out of the translation say I'm not a slave to anyone, I have voluntarily become a servant or a slave to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people. Those who are religious, those who are non-religious, those who are meticulous moralists, and those who are loose living immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, 
whoever. Paul says Christians, non-Christians, Jews, not Jews, those who live radically devoted to those teachings and make up their own rules and those who don't seem to grasp that there's any morality at all. I wanna be with everyone all the time. I didn't take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I met into a God-saved life. I did all this because of the message, the good news. I didn't wanna just talk about it, just be a, a, somebody who talks about being a Christian. I wanted to be in on it. I love what Paul says here because he says something that you and I have to wrap our minds around, that there is not an audience of people that God has not called us to serve. To serve. He says, I've been every kind of servant. That means that with those who lived immorally and those who lived morally, with those who were Jewish, with those who were non-Jewish, there wasn't a definition of people that Paul didn't say, they're not of my taste, therefore I don't serve them. Paul said, I'm not bound by anything. I'm not obligated by any particular teaching or lifestyle. I voluntarily took on their culture so that I could see things from their perspective so that I could serve them. The church has to learn how to serve the broken, the marginalized, the hurting, the disenfranchised, the scared, the angry, every person outside of these doors who wonders why in the world would I wanna have any encounter with them inside or outside of their church building, we have to answer that with this because I wanna see the world the way you see it. I wanna understand what you understand. I wanna know what makes you tick. I wanna experience the world through your eyes so that I can serve you just like Jesus did. Can I tell you this? Jesus came to the whole world, not to just those who would accept him. Not to just those who would turn their hearts to him. Jesus served everyone. Jesus healed people that never turned around and thanked him, never gave him credit for being God, never acknowledged him as being the healer. Jesus spoke to tens of thousands, only a small fraction of which believed. But Jesus brought the message of hope and the grace of God and the mercy of God's forgiveness to everyone. And he became man and he took on the sin of everyone to serve them. Third and finally is this. God called me into the grave because that's where I prioritize his people over my pride. A lot of us are familiar with that verse, um, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation, the old has gone and the new has come. We like that verse because it makes us feel hopeful for ourselves that we are a new creation and all of our past mistakes, all of our failings, all of what makes us broken, that's gone and we are alive now in the resurrection of Christ. But actually the context of that verse was not meant to be absorbed by the reader for themselves, but rather it's trying to convince us that 
There is a message, that's the message we bring to those who we believe can't be regenerated, who believe we can't be saved, they can't be helped, they can't be turned, they can't be uh, uh, moved towards a knowledge and relationship with Christ. So I'm gonna read that passage, it's a little long, but hang in there with me, this is 2 Corinthians 5. Because of all that God has done, we now have a new perspective. We used to show regard for people based on worldly standards and interest. In other words, we judge them from the outside. We judge them according to their wealth or their poverty, their skin color, their gender, all of the things that in varying cultures we use to do that. No longer. We used to think of the anointed in the same way. No longer. Therefore, if anyone is united with the anointed one, Jesus, that person is a new creation. That life is gone and see, a new life has begun. All of this is a gift from our creator, God. He's setting this up so that we understand none of us deserved to have this new life. Who has pursued us and brought us into a restored and healthy relationship with him through the anointed? God did all the heavy lifting. And he has given us the same mission, the ministry of reconciliation, to bring others back to him. It's central to our good news that God was in the anointed making things right between himself and the world. This means he does not hold their sins against them like you do, but it also means he changes us to proclaim the message that heals and restores our broken relationships with God and with each other. Man, do I love that. So we are now representatives of the anointed one, the liberating king. God has given us a charge to carry through our lives, urging all people on behalf of the anointed to become reconciled to the creator God. He orchestrated this, the anointed one who had never experienced sin, and listen, this is where I wanna stop for a second, and he became sin so that in him we might embody the very righteousness of God. Jesus, who was right all along, was never wrong. He wasn't wrong in anything he ever taught. He wasn't wrong in anything he ever did. He wasn't wrong in anything he ever thought. He never sinned. I mean, that he wasn't morally wrong in any of those things. I mean, there was a time when Jesus sort of jetted off from his parents, didn't tell them. You might see that that was behavioral, but that was not sin, right? He did not sin, and the Bible says that God made him become sin for us. I want you to hear this. Paul says, I become all things to all men so that I might win some. There's nobody that I wouldn't serve because I wanna see them know who Jesus is. And this is who Jesus is, that he became sin for us. So the most vile, despicable, horrible, the most uh, abominable thing that you can imagine that any person is capable of doing, Jesus took that sin on. So that people could be reconciled with God. That's how far Jesus would go to bring peace between God and man. Jesus didn't insist on being right. You see, Jesus himself said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save the world. 
I come to offer hope to the world, to give grace and mercy to the, I didn't come to judge or condemn the world, I came to do this because he could have done that because we all want an angry God who will judge this world, who will, who will burn up all the sinners and leave us safe so that we can enjoy this utopian society, this thing in which we get to all high five each other because God got rid of the bad, bad sinners. We love an angry God because it gives us permission to be angry too. And can I tell you this, God has pushed off his wrath. He set aside his judgment. He's opted for grace. He could judge us, he could condemn us, he could open up the earth and let it swallow all of us and instead he's chosen to give us a message of grace in which we understand what it did for our lives and what it can do for the lives of others. And this is the last passage I'll leave you with today. As you deal with one another, here's our mission, you should think and act as Jesus did. In his very nature, he was God. Jesus was equal with God, but Jesus did not take advantage of that fact. Instead, I mean, can you imagine Jesus in every argument with his parents, with his siblings, with friends, where he just goes, why are you arguing? I'm God. Shut up. (laughs) Or where they're talking and Jesus is saying it just a split second before they say it. He's all, I guess I know what you're gonna say. And they're like, yeah, but, and Jesus is like, yeah, but, And he just does it. He's like, remember, I'm God. He didn't use any of that to his advantage to condemn, overpower, establish his right to be right. Jesus was equal with God, but Jesus didn't take advantage of that. Instead, he made himself nothing. He did this by taking on the nature of a servant. He was made just like human beings. He appeared as a man. He was humble and he obeyed God completely. He did this even though it led to his death, even though, or even worse, he died on a cross. Can I tell you what that means very simply? Jesus understood the price tag of serving people and taking on their sin. He ended up being punished for everyone else's sin. The posture of a Christian isn't to fight for our rights. Can I tell you this? As a follower of Christ, you have no rights other than the ones God gave you to his grace. You have no rights. You might as an American, but I hope you understand the distinction between those two. I hope you don't conflate being a Christian with being an American. I hope you understand that there are seven billion people on the planet and only about 500 million are here that God has a love and a passion for all those other people too. And Christianity isn't the product of America. So when we get all puckered in our rears and we hear something's happening, we go, we gotta fight, it's all right as Christians. I'm doing my Southern Bubba inbred accent there for you. I just have to tell you as a pastor, I wanna love you enough to tell you, you don't have any rights as a follower of Christ. You have the right to claim the grace that God gave you freely. And you have the right to behave as Jesus did. Those are your rights. You have the right to live under the laws 
of grace that the law of grace provides you. And I want to tell you, they're sacrificial, they're loving, they're humble, they're kind, they're merciful, they're forgiving, they're patient, they're understanding, they're empathetic, they're compassionate. They are all the things that this world does not want you to be. And so Jesus understood that it was going to be him that had to sacrifice his preferences, his ability to be right. Listen, can I tell you, are you morally right about a thing? Are you intellectually right about a thing? Are you, um, uh, are you, are you, are you uh, societally right about a thing? Are you, li- you might be right. Jesus set aside his right to be right. So that he could reconcile us to God. I know we want to tell everyone, we want to be the hall monitors of the world. Stop running, you're late to class, you're not supposed to have that. Quit drawing on your locker, you you know those shorts are too short. We want to tell everyone how bad they are. We don't even distinguish between the world and the church. We'd love to tell different churches how bad they are. And I, I see these pastors, man, who just spend their Sundays crapping on other pastors. And I'm like, good Lord, did you run out of people to tell about Jesus? Like, is everybody in your town saved and going to heaven? Like, what are you doing? Have we gotten to the place where we have just run out of people to help and people to serve and people to tell the love and hope of Christ to that we just stand in a pulpit and crap on each other? Yeah, I say crap. Somebody's probably gonna see this online and then crap on me for saying crap. I've got God's grace, so it doesn't matter. You should hear some of the other things I say. They, all, they also happen to be four letters in, in, in typical, yeah. Um, darn and dang and heck. I mean, come on, guys. Don't make me say them from up here. Let me close. I, I want you to be empowered and encouraged. This, this isn't meant to expose and uncover how badly we do at this, but it's meant to bring light to how hard this is for us. You live in a culture and a society that will only show you two sides to something. Just watch the news for five minutes. Go on social media for five minutes. Everything is, the headlines are meant to elicit an emotional response. It'll never say, Another thought is added to a very complicated issue on which there are tons of nuance and a lot of different things that have to be considered before you make a judgment on this. It'll just be like, Trump says he's gonna kill everybody to become president again. Biden sends nuclear missile to Mar-a-Lago. And you read it and it's just complete and utter nonsense. But you were like, ah! Another thing that confirms the world's going to hell in a handbasket and I need to rally my family and build a bunker and, man, I gotta tell you, things are not worse today than they were 2,000 years ago. The culture and society that Jesus lived in, I don't, I won't, we don't have the time for me to tell you how unbelievably crazy it was back then, how hostile the government was to Christians back then. We've gotta stop playing the victim and start getting on task on purpose. Set aside our preferences. 
Set aside our right to be right. Start serving people. Start loving this community. You want to know how we'll fill this place with people? We give them a, a, a lighthouse that stands alone and above the culture of Christianity out there that just adds to the hate, that adds to the black and white, that moves people to the sides of the room. And we just say, listen, it's a messy, messy world. And in here, you're going to find every imaginable shade of gray. And you might even find that you don't agree with this person over here, but you don't agree with this person over here, but you will get to the point where you just go, I don't care, they all look close enough, let's just paint the walls. Because I care more about growing in my relationship with Jesus Christ and helping this person grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. I was never called to fix your sin. I was only called to follow Jesus, love him, and let him work out in me what needs to be worked out in me, and call you to the same relationship with Jesus Christ so that you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If you will, just give yourself a second, maybe close your eyes. Think about maybe one thing that God said to you today that you say, I may not be able to implement all of this and I especially may not be able to do it all quickly, but I want to do this right. And I'm gonna start with this one thing that I felt like my heart rate increased a little. I felt like God just made my ears a little bit more attuned to that part of the message. That's what I'm gonna start on. If you felt like there was something like that for you, just shoot a hand up and say, yeah, that's, that's me. I heard God, thank you, thanks. God, I pray this, that every one of us heard something that challenged the way we think and the way we see and the 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 motivators and the mechanisms that move us to the extremes, that move us away from people instead of towards people, that make us like Paul and make us like Jesus where we are among the people who are hurting and don't yet know the truth about who Jesus is and what his purpose and plan is for their life. And our message to them isn't to try to get them to agree with us simply get them to see us as a co-journeyer, as a, as a, uh, uh, as a co-adventurer uh, uh, um, in finding and discovering a faith that brings liberty and life to us. And they see in us God's grace and forgiveness poured over our failures and mistakes in the way we pour grace and mercy over those around us who don't live up to the standard or a standard or my standard. And they just say, I like what they've got. I don't have to know what they know. I don't have to believe what they believe. I just have to know who they know. Let him do the work. So that's my prayer for each of us as we journey out of this place. Maybe we'll gather with a crowd of people at our home who need to see a changed version of us for us to live out what we say we believe in our hearts and in our minds. Help us bring your peace to broken and unreconciled relationships. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.